It's the podcast. I want to start by saying sorry, 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 sorry. I haven't updated the podcast in a while, but I've got a good one for you now. This was an old interview that I gave back in the summer with a great guy called Dave. He's got a, a podcast that rhymes, a podcast called Master the Mind, Master Anything. And we spoke for a good 40, 45 minutes about mental health, what I see and perceive now with mental health and what I wish I knew when my dad was still alive. And also as well, we talk about masculinity. So there's a lot in this episode, a few topics that I haven't really discussed before. So sit back, grab yourself a drink, do whatever you're doing right now, keep these earphones plugged in and enjoy this interview. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 71, I think, of the Master of the Mind, Master Anything podcast with me, Dave Cottrell. I'm super excited about this interview today. I've schlepped down to London, um, a word that my Jewish client Debbie taught me, schlep. I've uh, made the trek down to London today, decided the last minute to get a train so I could get two more hours sleep, so I'd be wide awake for this. Today I'm interviewing a young man named Paul McGregor. He's the author of an amazing book called Man Up, Man Down, which I recently read. Uh, you may have seen it on my Instagram story. I'm going to shut up and hand over to him because we all know how long I can make these intros last. So, Paul, thanks for joining me. No worries. Great to have me. Um, I've got to start with the most burning question that came out of the book is, how does an Essex boy become a football <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, because I was born in 1990, so we haven't even won the league, so I can't even <laughs> say I'm a glory hunter. Um, my mum, my mum's a big Liverpool fan. Um, okay. She always has been, and she got me and my brother into Liverpool kits as soon as she could, and we've never stopped supporting them since. Fair enough. I feel like we're the opposite side of the same coin now, because both my parents um, were Everton supporters, so I, th- I feel like, now I can say I'm a glory supporter, really, because... Yeah. <laughs> I was I, grew, I was born in eighty two, so uh, you don't want to support Everton back then, do you? But you know it wasn't they that good? bad. They oh. were in the FA Cup. It was every alternate year, like Liverpool would win it, Everton would win it. But you it saw was, that Liverpool were going to do better. I like red more than blue. <laughs> <laughs> and now, like I'm sat here in purple. Yeah. It's like obviously, um, I now obviously support the union of all Liverpool teams or something. But yeah. but yeah, no, it was just it was the first thing that struck me because obviously you didn't mention about your mum in the book about yeah. her being a Liverpool fan. I was just like. You know, you get, especially again, you say you like you get how people that became Man United fans around that time yeah. because they just dominated everything, and suddenly ninety percent of their fans weren't even from Manchester. It's one of those things I think being a Liverpool fan has taught me resilience and patience. <laughs> it's, yeah, simple as that. Yeah, it also, it also taught me how to. That I don't need to watch the match when I've already got anxiety. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I learned to watch the match. My friends found this really weird. I watch the match via Twitter these days because it doesn't cause me such a heart attack yeah yeah so and although I really regretted that last week with the uh, yeah, with yeah. Barcelona game I wish I'd have watched it properly um, okay so tell us a little bit about your backstory like in terms of in terms of coming from the fashion brand and then tell us how you got to where you are now um, obviously going into as much detail as you want about the subject of the book yeah so um i always kind of say my life was kind of carefree in a way all the way up to about 18 um when i say it was carefree though i always came across as like quite a confident outgoing person at school i played football i had you know friends i was always kind of that you know outgoing person but inside told a very different story i was quite insecure i was um you know probably looking back at it maybe struggling with a bit of anxiety as well which i didn't really know what it was back then um and i was very good at wearing a mask you know going into school wearing that mask and sort of you know but but not feeling that great but the story that i i share more is of my dad and you know he was someone who i idolized he had everything on paper like you know full-time engineer part-time physiotherapy business 
I remember when I was about 10, 11, he went and studied psychology and got a degree in psychology, you know, meditated, ran, and he just broke, just one day just broke and um, went from being that man that we all knew to someone who was extremely depressed and, and suicidal and sort of seeked help from, from the doctors, um, got given antidepressants and went back, got some more, and then a couple of days later he attempted suicide for the first time. And it was a massive, massive shock to us all, as you can imagine. You know, how has this happened? How has the dad, who's got no signs of mental illness, gone from this person that we all kind of look up to to attempting to take his own life and end it all? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he, he, he survived that accident. And, you know, we thought the nightmare was over, but the nightmare got worse. And he got worse. And he um, sectioned himself because he was feeling extremely suicidal. He spent a couple of months in a local mental health unit, um, which was our first exposure as a family to mental illness, you know, visiting my dad every single day and seeing him there in a psychiatric ward with, you know, people suffering with schizophrenia, psychosis, bipolar, and, you know, seeing my dad in that environment was was difficult. Um, But he came out of that and, and sort of seemed better, but... He just, he just never recovered from that first breakdown and he, yeah, he took his life on the 4th of March 2009. And I just didn't deal with it, you know, I didn't, I just bottled it up and sort of chucked the grief away and um, chased short-term pleasures like alcohol, you know, making money, nice cars, nice clothes. And it all kind of resurfaced like a couple of years later and I was in a, a bad place too. Um, but yeah, you know, since then, and we can go into it in a lot more detail, it has been a gradual process. You know, it's 10 years now since it's happened. I can now share it openly, but I didn't tell anyone, you know, for a good two to three years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's kind of, you know, why I, I talk a lot about, you know, mental health as I do now. Yeah. When you said, obviously, you, you kind of almost push yourself into the, the distractions, the alcohol, the clothes, all the cars, all of that stuff... Were your friends kind of trying to get past that at all? Was it was just social circle, anyone that wanted to talk about it? Or was that was it just left B? I think it was just left B. And I think a lot of that was down down, down to me. It was very much, you know, if, when, when we lost Dad, it was, I remember, you know, texting my best friend and telling him. And, you know, obviously he's shocked. He, he knew my dad. My dad was very involved in our football teams. And, um... And then I said to him, look, can you tell all the other guys? And he did. And then, you know, messages come in. And you're getting a lot of support, which is, which is amazing. And then the funeral comes. A lot of them come to the funeral because, again, they, they knew him. Um, but after the funeral, for me, that was when the mask came on. That was when, right, now I have to go back to normality. Let's just put this mask on. Let's show this brave face and go out and do it. Yeah. And I don't think it was anything that they did wrong. Um, I think for me it was more of when I'm with them, the way that I show that I'm dealing with it is to laugh, to joke, to show that brave face. And I'll deal with it on my own. So I used to go to the pub, we'd drink, we'd laugh, we'd joke. I'd go home and I'd cry myself to sleep and just, you know, head in the pillow because I didn't even want my mum to hear because I didn't want to burden her either. Yeah. Um, I'd drive to work, cry my eyes out, then walk into it, hey, how are you? Good weekend? Yeah, great, you know? And then you'd get back in the car and the same thing would happen again. So I think, I don't think a lot of it was my friends. I think maybe if I did talk, they would they would have been there and they yeah. would have been, but I think I just had that guard up. Yeah, definitely. I think I, I like the fact that you, you've come to that realisation because there's so much of a, should people reach out to us, should we reach out to them? And the answer, I think, is probably both. It's, mm. like, it's, it's like, let's not sit back and argue about whose responsibility it is. Let's just say, well, it's both people's responsibility. And, um, 
Also as well, I think it's so important, especially with something like that, I felt very isolated. Yes. Yes, my friends were there, but I just was so drawn to the fact that they don't understand. Yeah. Like they haven't lost anyone to suicide. You know, they don't understand it. Even I didn't understand suicide. I didn't understand why my dad did it. Mm. Um, and also as well, I think with suicide grief, there's a lot of shame around it as well. Um, you know, so I lied about it for a good period of time to like strangers that I would meet. You know, if, if someone said, you live with your parents and I live with my mum, or, you know, what about your dad? Oh, my dad died. And they'd always say, you know, how did he die? Was it, was it cancer? And um, I used to just say, no, he died in a road accident because... I didn't want them to judge him as a man. I didn't want them to judge me. Like, did he not love me enough? Did I not do enough? Judge my mum. So I was very silent about it. So, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one. How do you feel about that now in terms of, like, about that level of opening up? Like, do you think it's important to actually fully acknowledge how, you know, how he died? Yeah, 100%. Because, again, you know, I, the way I dealt with it is bottle, yeah. push it down, yeah. distract. But when you have done that, it's just going to chip away at you. It's just eating away and eating away and eating away. And every distraction then lasted a little bit, um, you know, less than it did before. So the nice clothes that you would buy would probably last, I don't know, a week. And now they're starting to last only an hour and then I feel crap again. Um, And, yeah, it was really that um, kind of bottling up, um, which, you know, caused me to to get to to a really really dark place. But I think as well, you know, there's there's a huge amount of silence around mental health and you know suicide in particular, and even grief. Yeah. You know, we don't talk about people that we've lost. So you add suicide into that as well, and it's just a complete silence. Yeah, I mean, I think like both you and I are two people that I've talked in the past about breaking the stigma and ending the stigma, and again like this almost them and us situation where it's like well whose responsibility to end the stigma is mm. it people because you might have obviously been fearful of people's response if you were like oh you know my dad lost his life from suicide it's you might have been fearful of their response but really it's in a way we, we help maintain the stigma when we don't talk about these things ourselves and it's like I, well, I, I mean, maybe a joke about it's a bit insensitive, but I always I say that I'm trying to normalise mental health conversations by being as open about the fact that you know I'm, I've tried to take my life three times as I am about the fact that I'm a Liverpool fan. Mm-hmm. And I mean, about you know up until last week, that was about <laughs> people that say, well, the Liverpool fan thinks more embarrassing. Yeah. But um, but I think you know I see the importance in actually in actually acknowledging and dealing with those tough conversations because. We can't. I don't feel we can expect other people to drop the stigma if we talk about it in a stigmatic way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think I always, I always talk about it, especially in the, the the talks that I do in companies. I always ask them, you know, what's the first word that you think of when I say mental health? Mm. And nine times out of ten, you'll get a negative answer. You know, sad, depressing. Um, what's the first thing that you think of when I say physical health? Gym. You know getting strong you know physically healthy you know positive um and then also what do you first think when i say mental and they're all like crazy you know nutter you know stupid all of these kind of again negative words that are associated with it so i completely agree i'm very much you know the same as you is that we need to normalize that conversation it needs to be a part of everyday life rather than just we talk about it once a year when it's world mental health day or you know something along those lines absolutely um Oh, you've, tricked, you've made me think of something, and it's completely gone. Right, I'll go back to my pre-decided questions. One of the big themes that um, one of the big themes that I, I found going through the book was uh, the talk about essentially masculinity and what it means to be a man. Uh, how have your thoughts on that evolved from sort of 
the carefree teenager to where you are now? It's a massive question. <laughs> massive <laughs> question. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I don't know, mas- masculinity for me is something that we all have to define ourselves. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my, I look at my granddad's generation, this is what I always compare, you know, he's 94 next um, month, and he's a stubborn, stubborn guy. And um, <laughs> he's an amazing guy, you know, and, and, but his conditioning of stiff up a lip, man up, get on with it, has served him. Like, yes. that's how he's been taught. That's how he got through war and saw his, you know, best friends being killed. My dad was an only child. You know, he lost my dad in March and my nan in April. So he lost, you know, his wife and son within a month. No tears. Literally, I remember the funeral vividly. You know, he walked off on his own and I was like, that's it, he's going to break. And then he turns around, he cracks a joke. Let's go, let's get on with it. And that was his way of, of dealing with those, yeah. those, those painful moments. Um, and my dad had a, a bit of that in him as well. You know, there was times when he did probably not show the emotion. You know, he suppressed a lot of those thoughts that he obviously was having for a long, long time. He felt like he couldn't talk about them. It would make him less of a man. But also at the same time, my dad was brought up by my, my nan. So, you know, it was more sensitive, emotional. So the way he brought me and my brother up was we'd kiss him goodnight, we'd, we'd hug. Um, but he'd also come down on us sometimes, you know, if I had a bad game of football or, you know, something <laughs> along those lines. Um, so I see it as that and then you know also now my generation now I'm a, a dad as well it's like it's, it's always that question of you know what is the right way or the wrong way of, of being that masculine role model <laughs> um, but for me what I sort of see as, as, as being you know a, a masculine man now is, is someone that knows what they want yeah. you know they have those those traits of you know wanting to provide for their family protect their family but I think the new alpha male has a lot of vulnerability as well yeah. and they're kind of okay with that vulnerability they're not closed off they own their vulnerability. They're not that, you know, victim mindset of this is what's happened to me, this is bad. It's, this is what's happened to me, but this is how I'm moving forward. Mm. And this is how I'm going to kind of utilize this as well. Yeah. And, and being okay with not being okay as well, you know. Yeah. Just, just really embracing vulnerability and seeing that as a strength rather than that's what's going to cause you to be weak. Yeah, awesome. I love that answer. I think, I think it's so right because, again, people are so determined to tell you what the right way is and people make profits of selling books telling you what yeah. the right way is. It's the biggest turn off for me as soon as someone says you've got to do it this way it's like well it could be the best advice in the world but I'm switching off right now if you say it's the only way to do it because there is no only way there's no one way to be a man no you know it's like it's the same with mental health in general isn't it you know it's so individual oh absolutely yeah that's why like I hate the word should like someone who posted a should with a line for it this morning I reposted that on my story which is like love it anytime someone like I just don't like that word because I think actually as as a mental health activists or awareness whatever we are I don't know what we are I don't have a title <laughs> for it I'm a, a mindset dude that's what I am yeah. as those people we have a responsibility to not tell people what they should be doing but to show people a few things of how what they could be doing yeah. it's a very subtle difference between those two letters changing an SH for a C but instead of like should make someone feel like they're lacking could make someone feel a little bit more motivated yeah so true and yeah it's like here's, here's something that worked for me here's something that worked for my granddad because one of the things that I've always thought is that we're told now don't ever say any, tell anyone to man up it's like well probably not in a lot of contexts now but there's probably a few contexts where it's gonna yeah. really motivate someone you know like like degrading things like saying stop being a pussy or all the rest of that yeah. like it works for some people exactly it, it, it's, it's, it, you're so right it's so true you know and I always see it as you know, if you're doing like a workout, you know, say we're in a boot camp scenario, some people will be motivated by that. You know, yeah. I know I would. If someone was, you know, 
man up, come on, get on with it. That, that would probably motivate me. Yeah. Um, whereas with other people, it would completely shut them down and it just wouldn't motivate them. And I think it's that, that one-size-fits-all approach to, to leadership as well. And, you know, we need to treat everyone individually. Yeah. It's true. Was I, um, I, before I became a mindset coach, I was working as a personal trainer. And um, one of my clients, she was going for Navy selection uh, ages ago. And she's like, can you just be a bit more horrible to me? And I'm just like... I can try. It's just not really me. Yeah, yeah. I was I was brought up by two women, so like I mean, I my dad was out of my life from when I was six, and my brother like didn't want anything to do with me at all. So I was brought up by two women. I don't have I don't have a male role model. How does that make you? How how is that? Do you think that's affected you? It gave me huge, huge daddy issues for a very long time. I sought the approval of so many male mentors like very early on in in. Um, in my career, like, I don't know if you're familiar with Lena, like, Ben Coomber, um, mm. health and fitness guy, either. Yeah. What, and Dan Wheeler, those two were like, I, I sought them for their advice, but then I wanted to kind of do bits and pieces of work for them, and I just loved, like, um, who was it? One of my clients calls it the belly rubs, I never thought about that, but like, the belly was when they told you, good job, and I was just like, I mean, it was, it led me down two paths, because my mum treated me like, I could do no wrong so it led me mm. down to think that all women should worship me yeah, and on the yeah. flip side it was like no men like me and no and you know it led me on this path of feeling but it basically made me feel not good enough and it led me on this path of thinking people are going to leave me and all of my best friends for a, a big period of time I ended up not speaking to them on the first ever time I disagreed with them because I was such an agreeable person if I ever disagreed with them it was like right that's it however pretty much all of them at some point have come back now like over the, as we've matured and got older and turned around and said look I've never had a friend like you since and I really miss you and I regret the fact that I fell out with you over that so I'm now basically claiming that the song never had a friend like me from Aladdin was written about me <laughs> I love your self-awareness like that you know just tracing all that back I was, that, that took a while I yeah mean, of course you know, I am eight years older than you so. <laughs> 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 but, um, but yeah that took a while and um it, it, it was essentially kind of what ruined my first marriage um, mm. because in, in that one I I always felt that I wasn't good enough so that no matter how good um, Katie, my, my first wife and the mother of my kids how, no matter how well she treated me I just wasn't capable of seeing it it became a self-fulfilling prophecy and then it was only um, I'm, it's like it's funny now on the exact opposite end of the scale like I'm, married, I'm now married for the last um, six years to a very very blunt and sarcastic Eastern European <laughs> and, um, <laughs> for the first couple of years of our relationship it was the exact I, thought, I felt like it was the exact opposite of what I needed because she was just like she'll, she'll tell me about things that I'm doing wrong she'll yeah, call yeah. me out on my bullshit and all the rest of it and at the time it was super hard but it's ended up being one of the best things for me yeah. because I think in my first relationship and in the, the sort of few people that I saw in the space in between, I was looking for someone to give me give me all the space all the space I wanted and all the nurturing I wanted. That essentially be another another bloody mum, mm. and uh, and that's yeah. what, not what I needed. I needed someone to actually say, right, you're gonna have to work through some of this on your own, and that's exactly what happened. At the time, it felt I'm like, well, you obviously don't care for me or yeah. most of it, but. I think that comes, I think that fits nicely into the whole masculinity thing as well. And mm-hmm. you know, I did a lot of um, you know, reading on like masculine and feminine energies and yeah. um you know, same with me, it's like, you know, my wife she's got, you know, traits of being quite blunt. I remember the first time because my, my dad literally, you know, he would um you know, my mum did it. My mum did everything. Like she'd cook dinner. You know, my dad would leave the play on the floor. So the way I was, the way I saw my dad is, all right, I'll leave the play on the floor. So my mum used to pick up the play, and I look back on it now and I cringe. And I remember when I first started um, dating my now wife, she cooked me dinner, 
and I left the plate on the floor and I left and she went pick your plate up <laughs> I went what do you mean pick my plate up you know it was just the way I was conditioned that as a man that's how I do it and that was hard for me to keep you know fighting back at that because was this me not being a man by not sort of doing these things you know like I started to clean I started to cook I started to get more hands on in the in you know as a, as a dad and things like that and yeah. That was stuff that my dad didn't really do. So I was very questioning, am I less of a man because I'm doing this? Um, but, but, you know, I don't, I don't believe that, that I am. I think it's just owning what, what, you know, makes you happy and not letting anyone else sort of define that role. Yeah. I think it's funny now with my kids because they've got, they've got two mums and two dads now. They've got, like, you know, like my stepmom on our side and a stepdad. But really, they've, got, they've basically got two biological mums in their actual mum and me. <laughs> and they've got two, bio- two stepdads in, um, in Katie's husband and my, and my wife because they are definitely the more masculine like, yeah, yeah. roles in that. I mean, like, this, if anyone sees Alona, well, she's got bigger shoulders than I do, but, um, <laughs> you know, I don't mean she's, like, masculine enough. She, she dresses very feminine and all that, and she'd probably kill me for calling her masculine a podcast. She doesn't listen. Actually, no, she started listening on Spotify. When You're in trouble. Yeah, she used to get trains a lot, and now she's in the car a lot. <laughs> oh, right. Um, we've already touched on escapism, actually, uh, which is when you said about going into like getting getting involved in kind of like drinks and, and clothes and cars and all that stuff so that's already sort of covered um what is your main focus like if you're working now big question um well i kind of made sorry so the, the first business i started was in the fashion industry and kind of built that up but the, the main sort of driver for that was was again that um gratification and success and sort of every level of you know that I wanted to get to was never enough yeah. you know so I would get to a income level it was never a, a huge amount but okay I'm still not happy you know? yeah. <laughs> get the website to a certain level you know I'm starting to achieve a little bit with that I'm still not happy you know rented house you know nice house still not happy and um, I, I kind of boiled down to the fact that it was just I was chasing success to make my dad proud I was chasing money to make my dad proud um, and it was about 18 months ago I, I started to share um, content properly around mental health I, d- I dabbled in it before yeah. three or three years ago like a blog post one video but I said right I need to just start sharing content on, on mental health and um, set myself the challenge of kind of just sharing content content and doing f- talks for free and building it up and building it up now when I first initially done it I wanted to help people like my dad I wanted to help people that may be suffering in silence yeah. sort of really targeting men but what I kind of found out was um, before the book etc that you know women were reaching out you know this really helped me understand why my husband took his own life or you know my brother's you know suffering with depression and this article really helped me as well yeah. um, so I, but I was still kind of trying to help people that were suffering in silence but now as a dad um, and also kind of seeing you know our generation and the generations before one of my biggest drivers is is, is them like yeah. you know my children and not trusting that there's a system in place for them not trusting that we aren't you know as open as a society still around mental health yeah. and trying to sort of make some change that makes it easier for them and you know my grandkids and my great grandkids um, <laughs> because I think it's going to take that much time um, to, to really kind of just you know be able to handle it because you know suicide's the biggest killer of young people and I, I hear stories about parents that have lost their 13 year old suicide and their 15 year old and their 17 year old and it's a huge fear of mine now it's just, it's just I could never imagine it losing my dad was hard enough but losing your child that you protect, you provide, that you you know want the best of them to end their life mm. would would be horrible, and I, I can never imagine it. So um, 
that is a big big driver for me to kind of you know help that next generation awesome yeah I mean I, I saw um, your piece of content about two or three days ago about okay, is, is the school system letting down I thought it was really good um, I, uh, I can't think of any it's I can't think of anything more valuable because it we never treat mental health as a as a as a we treat mental health as a care as a painkiller, mm. not as a as a multivitamin. It's like a prevent. It's a cure rather than a prevention. So true. It's reactive. It's like oh god, this person's struggling now. Now we best do something. By the point a person's got to that, the weight of it's already so much on top of them that if we can help them with the coping mechanisms before that weight gets there, mm. then I don't know. It's like it's. It, then it's prevention. It's like it's that yeah. multivitamin. It's that you, the best kind of mental health. Um, there's a video I'm, I'm, I'll be recording back up this week called "We All Have Mental Health." I put it up about a year ago, and there's a bit in the middle that says that we all have mental health. Basically, if you've not experienced bad mental health, it just means you've had good mental health. You've never reached that rock bottom. And if you're lucky, if you've got the coping mechanisms and your those means outweigh the kind of struggles that you go through, then you will probably never reach rock bottom. Mm-hmm. And I pray and hope that you never do. Yeah. And um, and I think the prevention, especially in, in younger people, it's so true. It's it's, it's like that. Like you say, it's that scale. It's the same with physical health. Yeah. If you ignore uh, physical illness, that physical illness gets worse. It gets worse and it gets worse and it becomes critical. If you yeah. ignore an issue with your mental health, it gets worse. It gets worse. It becomes critical. It becomes a mental illness. And I, I think that there's there's such a parity, you know, around physical and mental health, mm. but we just see it as two completely different things. Yes. But, but yeah no I massively agree and it's a good point of, of putting it you know that we do wait for that rock bottom we wait for that critical stage and you know with my dad I, I, I say now that he could still be alive but when he broke I think it was way too late yeah. I think everything that we tried in that six month period nothing I don't, I don't know but I don't believe that there may have been anything that could have stopped him at that point Beca- yeah. because as you said it was rock bottom it was that critical stage yeah I mean I through River Life a Day the actual first call of it like last year was a suicidal male and it ended up being five suicidal males that I spoke to last year and it's always this sort of same visualisation of them losing the battle and by the time most men open up women like open up so much earlier not all of them you know I'm obviously this just this is, this is a bit of a generalisation but by the time men open up like not only are they fighting the battle but they're the last man on the battlefield mm-hmm. and the enemy's got you entrenched and it's like so then when you actually start getting that person to fight back it's like they're fighting back against what seem like insurmountable odds so what would it work for someone like who's all the way over the other end of the scale still got people on the field with them still like it's it's, it's fair, you know it's a bit more fair like a push for that person lets them see hope almost quite straight away but for someone who's already fully entrenched, it's like that push, those, those efforts that they might make might even in themselves feel more futile. And then as soon as you think, well, everything I try is not working, yeah, you're more entrenched. And I think, you know, you, it's, it's a generalisation, but there's also, you know, the statistics prove that women are, are more likely to attempt suicide. Um, men are three times more likely to die by suicide. Yeah. Um, so... I think, as you say, that is. I think, as men, we 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 seek help at the last minute, you know, um, and also as well, you know, the alcoholism rates amongst men, you know, drug rates amongst men, overdoses, etc. You know, that's all part of them using those, you know, substances to numb the pain and deal with it that way, rather than deal with it, you know, by talking or, or, or sort of facing it head on. Yeah. And I think again, that all represents again, as you say, as men. We feel weak if we talk, and um, we just leave it to the last minute to be able to do so. Yeah, definitely. And I think 
the irony there is that we don't want to let people down mm. and actually by bottling it up to the point at which we do something serious then we end up creating a worse situation than by actually opening up and saying I'm struggling I'm exactly. having a bad time here it's like it's, we, we create the thing that we're trying to avoid mm. and the opposite I suppose with um, with things like substance abuse with things like alcoholism it's like yeah, give that it's something I call a boomerang in my work. It's something that gives that person that escapism in the short term, but the cost of making them face it even more when they come down, when the alcohol wears off, when mm. when they lose friends because they've turned their back on them because of drugs, when they lose the house, it's like by trying to escape that pain in the short term, we're inviting the longer term pain into our house. We throw the boomerang forward and it just comes whipping back. Hundred percent. Um, I need to get through more of these questions. I've only got like 18 moments. <laughs> this is an interview that I wish I could probably go on for yeah. like three hours. Um, okay, what I would, like, where I would like to know is you said obviously it was a kind of a, a slow process. What would you say was the first big step on that sort of process? Who was the first person you opened up to, or yeah, or where was it? Was it an actual person? Was it a blog back then? Um, a lady called Anne, and Anne was amazing. She um. Like I said, I, I was sort of dealing with it on my own, and then I went to I went to the the doctors, and I sort of said, you know, I'm sleeping like 14 hours a day, but I still feel really tired, and yeah. you know, I don't want to leave the bed, and and he was like, you're depressed. Um, I think you should go on antidepressants. I, I ran away from that diagnosis because the biggest fear is I'll end up like my dad, and it was almost like, wow, I'm 21, my future's pretty bleak, um, and here I am sitting in the same situation my dad was in. I'm going to go the same way as him. Mm. And I went into some dark places, but he, he put me to see a counsellor and I went once or twice and it didn't really didn't really help. And then I went to see, a, I think, a psychiatrist as well, like a private one. And then, um, yeah, Anne was the lady who helped me. But the reason, the reason I went to Anne first was I was struggling with a back problem yeah. and she gave like a massage, like a holistic massage. But she, she only accepts donations. So I was like, oh, it's cheap, you know. She's not a registered business. She just does it because she wants to do it. And um, my wife, we were only dating at the time. She sort of said, um, "Anne is like a witch. She she <laughs> knows she knows more about you than you know about yourself." And I was really I, was, I don't know why, but I was drawn to that. So I booked an appointment with her. Sort of walked in. Hey, you know my back's really sore. I, I work a lot. I sit at a desk. Da, 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 da. She gave me a massage. She referred me to a chiropractor. Do you want to come next week? You know, yeah. Booked in again. Sort of put ten pound in the pot. Left. Went back the week after. Um, why are you here? Um, you know, I'm here for my back. And then she says, she said it, and this is the important point, like asking twice. She, yeah. she said, why are you really here? Yeah. And like that, that got me, like it broke me. And, and I just said, um, my dad killed himself. I don't know how to deal with it. And I just cried and cried and cried and cried. Now that was, that was a turning point. But when we do share for the first time, it's like a weight's been lifted off your shoulders, but it's also now the wound's been exposed. And I yes. felt I felt terrible. Like that <laughs> yeah. night I was like, why am I still crying? Like I don't wanna I don't wanna be like this, I wanna stop crying. Um and um a lot of people at that point will then put a plaster on it. They'll then put like something that just bandages it up and it's still gonna be there. But what Anne did amazingly is I saw her twice a week after that, you know, and she was just very good at guiding me. Like not solving my issues listening every single week and saying I think you should read this book here it is or writing something down go and check this out on YouTube she's like in her 70s now bless her but go right, go check this out on YouTube <laughs> and she kind of really drew me down a sort of spiritual path which again looking back at that 21 year old Essex boy that was still going to Iron Napper and Malia at that time um, <laughs> sort of reading books about you know ego and um, all of this stuff but honestly that was 
a game changer for me because it was that self-discovery, answering questions about myself, but more importantly, answering questions about my dad. Like, why did he do it? Um, you know, can I forgive him? Can I forgive myself? Can I let go of this guilt that I'm carrying with me? And the, as you know, there's no overnight um, win, but with time and with time and with time, things started to get better. But even now, it's still it's still a process. You know, like this weekend was terrible. I don't know why, but my mind was just on overdrive. It's just feeling, you know, pretty hopeless. And, you know, I was with the family and my mind was, you know, all over the place. And then you start questioning yourself. I thought I was past this. It's been 10 years now. <laughs> I do all this work. Like, I'm, I'm fine. Like, I'm quite open about it. But, but, but then today I feel good. And yesterday I felt better. Yeah. And... I just think we have to look at it as that. It's a process. Um, but talking was definitely the first thing that helped. And then secondly as well, I always kind of mention it, is um, lowering the expectations of myself okay. and doing small things. Yeah. So at that time of despair, depression, I was like, I need to go in the gym. I need to go for a run. Because I was that sporty guy who could go and run three miles in a quick time, I expected myself in that depressive state to go for a three-mile run and run very fast. Yeah. And I just couldn't bear it. So I started by, I think, doing like 10 press-ups in the morning, 11, 12, 13. But just pretending that I'd just done something amazing. Like, you know, well done for doing that. And um, gradually, gradually building up that um, sort of confidence again as well. Yeah, um, that's literally something that my audience knows is what I call baby steps and happy dances. Mm. You, do this, you do a baby step and you treat it like, like it's, it's important. Baby steps big to a baby. Yeah. And we, but we don't chastise the baby step and go, oh, that's only that. Like the weekend, like I thought I was past all this. Like, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to my meditation or my stretching or whatever. And I'm going to move past this again. Yeah. As opposed to, okay, I'm now chastising myself for the fact that I'm back there. And it's like we do the baby step and then we do a happy dance. And that can be a literal happy dance. Or my favourite is the 80s reaching crowd. Yeah. <laughs> I remember but, I worked with a mentor once. I can't remember his name, but um, that was Liam. It was Liam. And he um, yeah, he, he told me like every time, it was more like sales training. I was doing like sales calls back then. It was all part of the business that I was running. And he sort of said, every time you sell, every time you do something, celebrate it. Yeah. So literally find your favourite song and like just dance and like, you know, cheer it and it's funny but it did make you feel a lot better immediately as well is I, I, because we're like we're like dogs in this it's like if I tell my dog off for pooing on the floor five hours after he's done it he thinks I'm telling him off for the fact that he just you know ate his dinner too quick or something yeah, yeah. he doesn't realise it's about that thing that happened five hours ago we like to think that because we're humans and we can think about all that yeah, yeah. past that but it's like if you get out and do a run for the first time in forever in the morning and then you tell yourself oh I'm made up for doing that later that day your brain doesn't make the connection mm. it makes the connection if you're like okay that you know that run wasn't as bad as good but I'm really proud of myself for the action from getting out there and doing it okay. straight away it's the same, and the, way, the reason I call it baby steps is because we don't chastise a baby when it falls over after its first step away from the couch. We don't go over and whip its feet out from the inside yeah, yeah, yeah. doing that so you can go across the whole room. But we think we're so much more grown up. So true. It's good, totally it's good. Um, right. Uh, Pace one seventeen first paragraph. Good job I brought the book. <laughs> That's got to be important, right? Just Page one seventeen. Okay, so first paragraph. But we, we okay. How long have we got? Ten minutes. <laughs> cool. Uh, okay. I'm not even sure that's relevant to what we've been talking about now. I'll leave it. I might ask you about that in email or something. Okay, I want to ask. Because I want to ask. Actually, now I want to. I want to ask two 
two very important questions really normally on all my podcasts I ask what's the worst piece of advice you see getting thrown around too much and what's the best piece of advice you don't see you don't see getting said enough I've slightly adapted those two questions for you because I want to, what I want to know is what did you need to hear back then that you weren't hearing wow um, that's a big big question I think I needed to I be told <laughs> I think I needed to be told that my dad loved me. Yeah, I think that was probably what I needed to be told. And because I didn't feel loved by my dad at that time. There's, you know, with suicide, there's such a lack of understanding and education around it. That for me, it was literally questioning, was I not enough for him to stay alive? Also as well, you know, was the 18 years that I had with him a complete lie? I thought he was this happy, you know, person, but obviously he wasn't. Obviously he was, you know, really, really struggling. Um, and I think I needed to be told that your dad loved you and that he was unwell and, you know, he, you know, felt like he was a burden to us as well. Mm-hmm. And also that he would want me to be happy because the first couple of years it was really kind of being, you know, sort of haunted by those questions but at the same time as well not knowing how I could move forward without him in my life just like how would I have kids because I want my dad to be a granddad how can I get married because I want him to be there at the wedding um, and as you know when we're in that place it's there's no forward movement it's literally just down 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 um, and Anne helped me sort of answer those questions and she helped me understand that my dad did love me my dad was unwell you know my dad felt like he was a burden and all of those things and explained more about being in that place and and what it was for him and she also let me know that that was my dad's story and it doesn't have to be my story yeah you know and and as soon as I could switch from this is a terrible situation to I'm so grateful and and you know you, you didn't grow up with a father figure I'm so grateful that I had an amazing dad in my life for that eight, those 18 years yeah. to teach me what I now know I'm also very grateful for my mum and how amazing she was and the fact that she's still here and you know she wants me to be happy and all of those you know questions and that gratitude and also changing you know the perspective and saying okay this has happened I can't change it but I can do something with it Um, but I definitely probably need to be told earlier on that, you know, he did love me and get someone to just explain suicide, someone to just help you understand the grief because you're just left to kind of figure it out yourself and you can get in really, really dark places. Um, so yeah. Okay. As, as a dad myself who the last time I did try and take my life, I already had my kids. I never stopped living. Mm. I just wasn't able to see it from where I was, and the light switch went off and it came and it came back on. There was a film called *The Diving Bell and the Butterfly*. It's French, and it's a guy with locked-in syndrome. True story. And he can't. He's like he's there. He can only watch his children. He can't interact with them whatsoever. And then there was a line that I'll try and get it out. <laughs> I said, "Even a shadow, even a sliver of a dad is still a dad." Mm. And that was that line was extremely transformational to me. But at no point did I ever stop loving my kids. It was mm. it wasn't about that. I just I couldn't see all those things. And people sit back and say, "You've got this, you've got that, you've got this, you've got all of this stuff." And I'm like, and the logical side of my brain was even I know, but the emotional side of my brain, it just wasn't there. He didn't show up. So the part of me that loved my kids, 
it was still loving them. It just wasn't. He just wasn't. It wasn't speaking to the other sides. Yeah. And um, did you feel like a burden to them as completely. well? Completely. I felt like they'd be better off with anybody other mm. than me. And that's one thing I've actually, I've written. I've written a letter to myself if I'm never suicidal again. And it talks about basically how the best chapters of my life, like I've gone on to not only survive but thrive since then. And I've I've done so many amazing things with my kids since then. And it's like even one of them was worth it yeah and um yeah it's uh but it was you know I, I hope I, I mean I imagine you know all of that you know now that no it's it's, it's always good for me to hear it from the other side as well so you know I appreciate you sharing that because it does you know, I, you you almost try and figure it out yourself. But one of the, the one of the reasons why I could move forward is I actually accepted that I'll never know why. Mm. You know, it's that question of why. I never know. I never know exactly why my dad killed himself that day. I'll never know why he had those thoughts in the first place. It's a question always everyone asks. You know, yeah. you know why did he do it? Like, did he have money problems or, and everything? But I don't think you could ever pinpoint it to one thing. But what I do know is, as you say, how he was feeling in that moment. And I forgive him for that, and I've got no resentment towards him for 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 what he did. Um, but I also know that I'll never know exactly why he did it. Yeah. Um, okay, so the opposite side of that question, and then I'll have to I suppose wrap us up, which I've got like seven more. <laughs> <laughs> what if if you were to give like one piece of, and this, this is a horrible question, I'm really sorry, because if someone asked me this question, I'd struggle with it actually. No, I won't go with that. If you, what is sort of a key piece of advice that you would like to give to anybody right now? Like, what do you think is one of the most important things? Mm, I think touching on what we were just sharing is just that adversity. You know, adversity, we, we kind of get very trapped by, you know, within our story. And I personally believe that that adversity is strength. You yeah. know, we can, we can use it to our advantage. It helps us build resilience. And some of the people that I speak to on a, on a regular basis, people that have maybe reached out on social media, they've seen one of my videos or they've read the book and they share my story, and, but they still feel very, very weak and they still feel very like they can't handle it. Mm. And I read it and I'm just like, you're so strong from being able to deal with what you've dealt with already. Yeah. And you need to see it in that way. That if you're struggling, if you've gone through a lot, if you're struggling with mental health, that you're in fact an extremely strong person. Your mind, your depression, your illness is going to tell you you're not. You're yeah. It's going to tell you you're weak and so is probably society. But I'm hugely, hugely passionate about getting that across that if you are struggling, that you're so, you're so strong to be able to deal with those thoughts every single day. Um, and to use that to your advantage to move forward like you've done, like I've done, like so many others do as well. And there's a quote that I always use it's don't be ashamed of your story let it inspire others yeah. and I think if, if we can get to that point of embracing vulnerability using that adversity as strength you know moving forward with it knowing that we're strong through what we've been through and not letting that define us I think that's you know such an important um, takeaway I also also, also want to say um, <laughs> gratitude yes like just Again, same like that headspace that I was in. This this is terrible. Like my dad's, you know, left. My dad's not around anymore. It's just that's that was my perspective. But as soon as I opened up that perspective into a broader picture, and I kind of said, I'm super grateful that I've still got my mum. You know, I'm super grateful that I had my dad. Um, I'm super grateful that I've got these people around me. And I think we can get so consumed in our own perspective of this is terrible. But when we open up that perspective and we actually see what we have, and we're grateful for what we have. I think gratitude is a superpower that we all need to kind of embrace a lot more. Yeah. Well, it's really hard for me to talk about my dad because, my, like, 
he has well he had like, he had three other kids. He's got my older brother and he's got my two little sisters. I'll have he he died when I was nineteen, and um, but like one of the things is like because my little sisters like they were a lot younger when he died, and to him to them he's like he did no wrong. To me, he basically didn't want me in his life and between until I was sixteen mm-hmm. or seventeen. And um, that was only because he stopped speaking to my to my older brother. He, like, and he remembered he had another son. And it's hard for me to actually say these, not because that, that's painful to me, but because I don't want my sisters hit, like finding mm. that out about their dad. And um, but he he wanted me back in his life for the last two years before he died, and then and he died really unexpectedly. But I will always be forever grateful for the fact that I got those two years not that I didn't get the ones before that I didn't mm-hmm. have a relationship with him you know I'd pop in on the way home from school and like see him for a bit and he'd like you know I'd go around and see him for two hours on a Sunday because that was what was caught agreed or whatever it was yeah. and even then a lot of times he'd go for a nap and leave me looking after my sisters and um, but I'm, I will forever be grateful for the fact that he made that connection with me in those last two years and um, yeah, so gratitude is a huge thing. And yeah. I think what, like, the, there's an ep- a whole episode of my podcast dedicated to it because one thing I think people often overlook with gratitude is we get into the habit of it and we just write it down. Here's three things I'm grateful for. Yeah. I would rather someone took one thing and actually yeah, meditated on how grateful they are. Like, yeah. Let that run through them just how grateful they are. And so and, specific as well. Like People are like, I'm so grateful for the world. It's like it's not specific enough to yeah. you. Like Get as specific as you can. Like. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm all about that at the moment. Even, even so, my brother had had, you know, we won't go into too much detail because we run out of time. But an accident as well, and you know, left him sort of brain damaged. Um, coming up to two years now, and he struggles with that still. You know, he's lost a lot of his physical movement. He's always improving, and he's like my inspiration now. As long as my mum, my mum cares for him twenty four seven. And you know, I'm out for a run the other day, and I'm like, oh, my legs, you know, it's too slow. And he's needs to hit this minute mile. Mm. And then my mind clicks in, and I'm like, you know, what would Steve say? You know, Steve's struggling to even walk. Mm. And here I am moaning that my legs aren't moving at an eight-minute mile pace. They're moving at a nine-minute mile pace. Yeah. And as you say, that gratitude specific to you and actually feeling that is, is, is so powerful. Yeah. I mean, there's another prime example of when we talked about context earlier and what works for one is what works for two. Because there'll, there'll be a few people that, like, have tried comparing it to someone else, and that makes them feel even worse because then it's like okay well they're not they're, they're like that and they're so much happier and and I'm still like this yeah, so it's yeah. like if, you, if, if you've listened to this episode and you, anything that me or Paul has said doesn't quite resonate with you don't use that or if it does resonate with you use that because it's all about what's right for you 100% okay final question sort of two part <laughs> where can people find you on social media everywhere <laughs> I try and be as active on as many platforms as possible so um, you know Instagram um, is pmcgregor.com Facebook's the same Twitter's the same um, LinkedIn just search for Paul McGregor I'm, I'm quite active on LinkedIn at the moment as well and then if anyone wants to kind of reach out um, on a personal level you can either you know email me paul at pmcgregor.com um, but yeah just kind of you know reach out on social media I'm, I'm active on there every single day and trying to get the message across cool and um, one final question I find that the from coming from the physical health space, the PT space into the mental health space, I found that a lot of the physical health spaces, everyone's wanting to kind of find their slice of the pie and all the rest of it. With mental health, I want to share everyone's piece of the pie. So obviously, I'm love, that's why I love collaborating with you, getting this, getting you on the podcast. Who is one person you think people should go and check out? Someone else who's working in the mental health space that you think is worth a look? 
you can say me. No, don't say me. It's useful. Uh, Dave, you can't go Dave. Um, <laughs> Two people. Where's the purple shirt? Yesterday. I'm like, it's, it's not um, useful. They already follow me. That's a big, big question. It's funny because I don't actually sound terrible, but I don't actually consume, as consume well. a lot in that mental health space. People like Luke Ambler's doing great, you know, Andy's Man Club. I'm, um, I'm interviewing him in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've not met him. We keep like crossing paths and we're like, we need to meet, we need to meet. Um, but, you know, there's loads. You know, I do a lot of work with the Shaw Mind Foundation, um, a guy called Adam Shaw who set that up. We're, you know, we're, he's doing some great things. Um, you know, there's loads. But but for me, I kind of listen to a lot of, as we said, like Gary Vaynerchuk and um, I used to listen to a lot of Lewis Howes and yeah. um, I kind of channel more into that. Um, but yeah there's so many people doing some great stuff and I come from the fashion industry which was hugely competitive and, and coming into this industry we're all on the same mission like we're all on the same mission we all want to achieve the same thing we all want to bring each other with us whoever doesn't are going to be found out their intent's not there they'll get figured out and they won't be here in five years everyone here we're all on the same mission and there's no competition awesome well thank you very much no worries thanks for having me on man appreciate it pleasure. just realised my microphone was a lot louder than his um, my voice isn't that louder in real life, but my microphone is a lot louder. If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know. Leave a rating and a review if you are over on iTunes. Really, really would appreciate that. And I do once again apologize for the lack of updates on the podcast. To be honest, a lot of the updates personally I've been sort of, you know, neglecting recently. I've been focusing on a project, a project called Every Mind at Work, which is a digital platform that will be rolling out into the workplaces over the next couple of months. And it really has kind of taken my focus alongside a lot of the work that I've been doing with the Sure Mind Foundation and really those two things in itself has been taking up a lot a lot a lot of time and I've also actually been looking after my mental health um you know there's times where I go up and there's times where I go down and there I got in a really really recent sort of blip because I was working too much and I've just had to kind of step back a little bit so the podcast has taken a back burner the, the personal content has taken a back burner but we're definitely going to be getting onto it. No rush. I'm patient with this. I know this is going to be a long process of trying to change the stigma and the opinions of mental health. So I'm not in any rush to do it. But please, I really appreciate your support always. And I'll see you soon.